Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussions from around the globe. In 1949, Germany was divided into two states. In this episode, I explore the attempts the East German government made to compete with their Western rivals, the methods they used to gain control, the challenges they faced, and the reasons for the eventual demise of the GDR. From the get-go, The regime was obsessed with watching events in West Germany. They wanted to put what they referred to as a fascist government into the shade. But their counterparts in Bonn had a distinct advantage. Money. The imposition of outlandish reparations had bankrupted Germany after World War I and given fuel to the fire that helped to create the Nazis. Eager to avoid the same mistake, the US government launched a massive spending campaign to rebuild war-torn Europe. In return for the investment, they gained goodwill, influence, and of course new markets for American businesses. Flushed with American cash, the rebuild in West Germany was well underway. In contrast, the Soviets had stripped East Germany of most of its assets and any movable industry as compensation for the war. To make matters worse, Major cities including Berlin, Dresden and Leipzig were some of the most heavily damaged during the war. The new state began with little infrastructure, no money and rubble where homes and factories had once stood. But ideologues like Pieck and Ulbricht had been thoroughly indoctrinated during their years in exile. They'd seen Stalin transform agricultural Russia into an industrial powerhouse. They planned to do the same and they adopted his tactics. The name of the game was self-sufficiency. Workers needed to be productive and hit specific quotas. If the production wasn't adequate, the quotas were increased, work hours extended, and wages reduced. The squeeze was on, and the workers quickly tired of it. Food riots and protests erupted around the country. This problem arose at an awkward moment for the East German government. A year earlier, Stalin had proposed the reunification of Germany, with multi-party elections, freedom of the press, and a German declaration of neutrality. In essence, it was a similar deal to the one that freed Austria from its own allied zones of occupation. Stalin's motives remain a mystery, but the West dismissed the proposal out of hand. For one thing, they favoured rearming West Germany as part of a Western alliance. For another, they feared Stalin was trying to drive them out of Germany so it would be vulnerable to a Soviet takeover. Albrecht and his colleagues were bullish about the proposal, boasting that free elections would see the unified nation become a communist state. With the offer rejected, they had pressed ahead with their own Stalinist-style collectivization plans. But in March 1953, Stalin died. The group that replaced him strongly criticised the East Germans' rush to socialism 
and told Albrecht and his cronies to curb the push for nationalisation and the other unpopular measures they'd introduced. They hoped this would improve the economic situation and dampen the discontent. Albrecht compliantly followed instructions and released a statement explaining that errors had been made and they were going to reverse course. Rather than easing the situation, this move made matters worse. Diehard socialists felt betrayed, while opponents saw it as evidence of the government's weakness. In June 1953, a series of strikes turned into a national emergency, as Western radio stations shared news of trouble in Berlin with the rest of East Germany. Disgruntled workers came out en masse, protesting the regime in major cities across the nation. Now in theory, the communist regime was, as Lincoln would say, government of the people, by the people, and for the people. There were no gods or kings. The workers were the state, and the state was the government. If the proletariat were dissatisfied, they had every right to effect change. But a century earlier, Marx's communist manifesto had created a loophole that the Soviets had since used to their advantage. Rebels were to lose their assets and their rights. Once the workers started protesting, they weren't the proletariats anymore. They were simply rebels. And rebels had no rights. The whole concept of governance by the governed was an oxymoron. As Orwell had put it, some men were more equal than others. And in East Germany, as in Moscow, power rested in the hands of a select few. On the 17th of June, the protests were firmly crushed by the East German secret police force, the Stasi, along with support from the Red Army. Thousands of people were arrested. Dozens were killed. Albrecht was widely blamed for the whole situation, and Eric Honecker was one of only two Politburo members who continued to support him. The Soviets also favoured his removal from office, until a leadership fight broke out in Moscow. This convinced the Soviets to let him stay in his role. From Albrecht's perspective, this was evidence that his powerful Soviet backers still had faith in his brutal Stalinist-style regime. Feeling emboldened, Albrecht decided to ramp up the suppression of his other enemies, beginning with the church. Officially, the state tolerated freedom of religion, and in the early years, the communists worked in tandem with the church. Various parishes ran hospitals, schools, and soup kitchens, things that were much needed in the war-ravaged nation. But as the country got back on its feet, the church was no longer needed. Albrecht effectively cut off the next generation of Christians by making it illegal for anyone to provide educational services except for the state. By 1952, the church schools were gone, and kids had to rely on their parents or Sunday services to learn about God. In the Catholic and Protestant churches, young teens would undergo a confirmation process where they made a formal commitment to the Christian faith. The state soon rolled out its own quasi-religious coming-of-age ritual for kids of the same age, where they had to affirm their faith in the principles of socialism and East Germany. The major Protestant churches reacted by denying communion to anyone who went through the state ritual. But when forced to choose between God and country, for a variety of reasons, not the least of which was fear, many people turned their backs on the church. 
With the church marginalised and the rioters in jail, Albrecht tightened his stranglehold with the help of another former exile, Eric Milka. He assumed control of the Stasi and quickly established a vast network of spies and informers that involved over a quarter of a million people over the next 30 years. Some citizens readily reported on the activities of friends and neighbours. Others were coerced with threats, blackmail or cash incentives. The Stasi's tentacles extended into the church, schools and factories. Even the Stasi spies were spied upon by other spies. Aside from gathering information, the idea was to create a climate of fear. You never knew if your milkman, sports teammate or family member was secretly gathering info on you for the Stasi. One of the problems the repressive regime faced was that there was nothing to stop people simply walking across the border from east to west, and many of them did. It's estimated that one and a half million people crossed into West Germany in the first year after the war. Migration was continual, but there were frequent surges after major events such as the uprising of 1953. This caused a brain drain in the GDR, as young, educated people fled for an easier life in the West. Beginning in 1953, East German authorities built physical barriers such as fences, ditches, to curb the tide. These were fortified over time, and expanded with no man's lands, and even minefields. But while the country as a whole was partitioned, the city of Berlin was not, and people wanting to escape Dresden or Leipzig simply made their way to the capital city and escaped Albrecht's regime. On the 13th of August 1961, guards sealed the Berlin border and began erecting barbed wire fences to seal off the west. As with the national border, the fencing was gradually fortified with watchtowers and a concrete wall. Anyone trying to escape risked facing a hail of machine gun fire. It's estimated up to 200 people endured such a fate. West Berlin was physically cut off from the rest of the world, but the rest of the world refused to accept the situation. Just over a decade earlier, the border had been sealed once before, when Stalin launched an embargo on West Berlin with the intention of driving out the Western powers. On that occasion, US President Truman responded to the challenge by launching a massive airlift to provide aid to the stricken residents. In 1963, the White House incumbent went a step further and flew out to Washington to give an address at the Berlin Wall. Freedom has many difficulties and democracy is not perfect. But we have never had to put a wall up to keep our people in. While the wall is the most obvious and vivid demonstration of the failures of the communist system. For all the world to see, we take no satisfaction in it, for it is, as your mayor has said, an offense not only against history, but an offense against humanity. Kennedy's speech was directed at several audiences. On the one hand, he was there to reassure the German citizens that the United States, NATO, and their other allies had their backs. Wall or no wall, the Berliners were not going to be abandoned. His remarks were also directed at liberals, who claimed the US could forge closer ties with the communists. 
The wall was an incongruous symbol of their stubbornness and hostility. Lastly, his speech was directed at Albrecht, and more pertinently, his sponsor in Moscow, Nikita Khrushchev. The Soviet leader had tried to call Kennedy's bluff without success during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and once again, the young president proved he was equal to the challenge. While this dystopian nightmare was unfolding, the government were keen to convey an image of success and happiness to the global audience. One way they sought to accomplish this was through sport. Young children were assigned to sports academies as little more than infants and trained to become world-class athletes. With West Germany having won the Soccer World Cup, East Germany needed to make its mark on the global scene. After a few decades participating at the Olympics in a unified German team, the East Germans competed under their own flag for the first time in 1968. In terms of medals, it was a great success, but it wasn't based purely on hard work. A government directive had seen scientists race to develop a variety of performance-enhancing drugs and masking agents. Up to 10,000 young athletes were injected with a variety of hormones and medicinal cocktails. The focus was entirely on sporting success. No regard was given to the long-term side effects. Many female athletes experienced virilization as hormones caused their bodies to exhibit characteristics of males. Over a thousand people suffered long-term health effects as a result of this doping program. Some athletes admitted complicity. Others were kept in the dark and had no idea they were being used as human guinea pigs. But East Germany achieved the result it had sought and finished above its western neighbour in the medal table at the 1972 games that happened to be held in Munich. These Olympics were best remembered for the horrific terrorist attack that saw a faction of the PLO massacre Israeli athletes. One of the men who planned the massacre, Abu Daoud, went on the run. It was revealed decades later he had found refuge in East Germany. This revelation wasn't hugely surprising, as the Stasi was known to have trained and supported militants, including the PLO, as they viewed Israel as a fascist state controlled by Washington. More surprising was the fact that East German government aided and abetted Nazi extremist groups in West Germany. The old KDP, which preceded the communist regime, had worked closely with Nazis in the 1930s. Leaders from the groups even campaigned together, united in their opposition to the Social Democrats. It was also the case that many of Hitler's henchmen had spent their formative years as followers of Marx, anarchists and other left-wing schools of thought. But World War II and Hitler's violation of a non-aggression pact with the USSR, not to mention the deaths of tens of thousands of German communists in Nazi concentration camps, had pretty much created an irreparable division between the two groups. So when the Stasi began supporting neo-Nazis, it had absolutely nothing to do with sympathy towards the fascists. It had everything to do with unsettling West Germany. After World War II, the leading Nazis and most egregious war criminals were tried in Nuremberg. But considering there were 8 million members of the Nazi party in 1945, it wasn't practical to try every one of Hitler's acolytes. Moreover, beyond just party members, you had soldiers, policemen, government administrators, and local officials 
who had in essence aided and abetted Hitler's regime. In West Germany, the majority of Nazis were given a clean slate and many of them became prominent businessmen or members of the new government. In the East, hundreds of thousands were left to rot in Soviet prison camps, but even still, some seemingly rehabilitated fascists made their way into the new regime. But the reminders of Hitler were far more visible in West Germany, and it's the narrative the communists were keen to push. From their perspective, the Bonn government was just a continuation of the Third Reich. By financing right-wing extremists, they could not only cause mayhem, they could also create headlines that reinforced the view that Hitler's ideology was alive and well in the West. For a modern comparison, it's like when the US government armed jihadists to fight the Soviets, a short-term deal without consideration of the long-term consequences. By the early 70s, Eric Honecker had risen to lead the government. The economy was stable, much stronger than in the other Eastern Bloc nations, and Berlin was a production hub of technology. However, the East Germans made the same mistakes as the Soviets under Brezhnev, and the economy was allowed to stagnate. There was a lack of innovation. As the computer age increased the light speed, East German industry was left in the dust. Under pressure to liberalise in order to access new markets and capital, Berlin, along with other Warsaw Pact governments, signed the Helsinki Agreement and promised to make a range of reforms. The changes were mostly window dressing, but Honecker did relax the persecution of the church. It was actually to his advantage. Churches frequently volunteered to help in elections, so he could point to falsified results as legitimate since Christian volunteers had been working at the polls. At the same time, Milka doubled down on his internal espionage, and plans were put in place to mitigate any serious threat of revolution. Forty years after the liberation of Auschwitz, modern-day concentration camps were ready to accept new residents, if and when they were needed. The problem for Honecker and Milka was that they were stuck in the 1930s, while in Moscow there was a new kid on the block. To put Gorbachev's approach into perspective, there was a Soviet joke in the era. The communist leaders were on a train. It broke down. Lenin suggested, nationalise the railway. The train didn't move. Stalin said, shoot the driver. Again, the train didn't move. Brezhnev said, let's close all the curtains. Predictably, it was to no avail. Finally, Gorbachev piped up and said, why don't we all get out and push? The young... By Soviet standards, Gorbachev realised reforms were needed to revitalise the USSR after the stagnation of Brezhnev's era. He rolled out slogans such as Glasnost and Perestroika to signal a new era of development and openness. Hungary and Czechoslovakia had toyed with reforms decades earlier before having their ideas trampled by Russian Red Army tanks. This was the first time a leader of the USSR had shown an interest in something other than a closed economy and dictatorship. US President Ronald Reagan had driven the country to the verge of bankruptcy with an expensive arms race, while Polish Pope John Paul had served as a beacon of hope for the repressed citizens trapped behind the Iron Curtain. When Gorbachev creaked open the door and offered a glimmer of hope for reform, Reagan slammed it open and called on his counterpart to back up his words with actions. In June 1987, Reagan 
like Kennedy before him, made his way to Berlin. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. Across Europe, this wall will fall, for it cannot withstand faith, it cannot withstand truth. The wall cannot withstand freedom. The pressure ramped up in April 1989 when Gorbachev visited Berlin and publicly told Honecker it was time for change. But his pleas fell on deaf ears as the East German regime doubled down, ironically clinging to a pre-Soviet communist history that they illustrated by dusting off old photos of Rosa Luxemburg, the martyr who had specifically warned against the kind of government they had built. A month later, protests broke out in China. Party leaders took a leaf out of the Soviet 1950s playbook by sending in tanks to massacre the protesters. At the time, Milka privately praised their actions and suggested that the Chinese had given his regime a template to follow in the event of a revolt. Domestically, discontent spread when church volunteers assisting local elections began to query the apparent landslide victory of the communist regime. Different parishes began exchanging details, and it quickly became apparent the election result had been falsified. Events were spiralling out of control. Gorbachev's reforms had been more warmly embraced in Poland, where the government had struggled for years to control the twin threats of the Solidarity Movement and the Church. In June, opposition parties were allowed to stand in parliamentary elections and representatives from Solidarity had a clean sweep of the contested seats. In Hungary, border fences were dismantled and the border crossing to Austria was reopened after 50 years. Thousands of disgruntled Germans made their way into Hungary before crossing to the west. At the behest of Honecker, the Hungarian regime eventually stopped this exodus, but the emigres instead headed to the embassies of West Germany in Budapest and Czechoslovakia, where they sought sanctuary. Demonstrations in Berlin became a regular occurrence, and on the 9th of October, Honecker and Milka gave the police the authority to fire upon the protesters. A European Tiananmen Square-style scenario was on the horizon, but thankfully, the police chose not to act. Honecker was desperate to hold on to power and believed he could still quell the protests. Despite overwhelming evidence pointing to his imminent demise, the veteran Stalinists refused to cede power. In the end, it took Mjolka, his trusted lieutenant, and the one man in government perhaps more despised than even Honecker, to change his mind. From the secret files of the Stasi, Milka produced evidence of Honecker's betrayal of the communists to Nazis some 50 years prior. He also knew all about his extramarital affairs and the millions of dollars he'd embezzled for his own use. Honecker was blackmailed into resigning. His replacement, Egon Krentz, was a younger, much more personable man with less baggage. But he was still a committed communist and not the replacement the people were demanding. The exodus of Germans continued until November 9th, when Krentz decided it was time to open the checkpoints at the Berlin Wall. Before plans were announced to detail the specifics of the crossing process, Berlin leader 
Gunter Shabovsky, assumed the order had no strings attached and told the television media it took immediate effect. Confused border guards were soon confronted with hordes of demonstrators demanding to exit. With no clear direction from above, the guards opened the border. Over the next few hours, it appeared as if the whole of East and West Berlin had descended on the border and joyous scenes of reunification and partying played out for the world to see. With the Iron Curtain having been opened, East Germany was to all intents and purposes dead. Powerless to stop the momentum for change, Krenz announced free elections which were held the following March. A coalition led by the Christian Democratic Union, the eastern wing of West German Chancellor Helmut Kohl's party, won on a platform of immediate reunification. Before the end of the year, East and West had disappeared from the map, and a single German nation was back in the heart of Europe. It had taken a hundred years for Karl Marx's communist dream to turn into a nightmare, but 50 years later, it was time for Germany to wake up. Well, stone the flaming crows. It's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow all Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com.